Hey, Brett, you know what time it is? Know what time? It's Miller time. Love that. <laughs> so we sat down with the one, the only Mark Miller. So Mark is, he's the OG, one of the OGs when it comes to the McKinsey Institute and MDT. And uh, he spent literally years with Robin. Uh, he had, he tells some insane stories about some phone calls he had with him and uh, just what a cool guy. Yeah, I think, you know, we've, uh, Scott or Bowie's been so influential for Gestalt mm -hmm. and you know we had really never sat down with Mark we've done a lot with Scott so it was good to kind of hear you know for, hear from Mark so we've, we've already you know done quite a bit with Scott but then talk about like how those two work together to basically create the extremity program for MDT yeah. and you know that was and then also just to see him you know as he worked up patients and then his knowledge base of the information is the most practical I, I think I've ever heard. Like mm -hmm. he just has a really good way and, and a gift for putting his words together and teaching. And then the other, I mean, thing where he is basically turning the world upside down right now is in the IMC model, mm -hmm. which is where instead of like, you know, in our profession, we're basically financially rewarded by seeing a patient more in the IMC model. It's the first time where a patient is actually given a case rate, mm -hmm. which basically means you'd be given, let's say it's a low back case, you'd be given a thousand dollars and you can treat them one time or you can treat them 20 times. It's up to you, but you're, it, you're actually motivated to see the patient less, which mm -hmm. that that's never happened before. So, um, and I'm not saying there might not be problems in that also, sure. but I'm just saying it's a different perspective. And, uh, and for those of us who are in rehab and evidence-based care to be, actually be motivated by seeing the patient less, uh, that's probably not a horrible thing. No, probably not horrible. Now this is part one of a part two, uh, two part episodes. And so part one, we, we dive deep into his story with Robin and, and MDT and McKenzie, uh, his early beginnings. And the second one is basically all about IMC, the, the issues with the healthcare model right now and how it all started. And I mean, to, to say that there is some insane stories in this would be an understatement. And yeah, a little birdie had told us that uh, he liked Schaefer wine. So going to Total Wine and not being able to pull it off the shelf and then saying, oh, we got to get someone to unlock that bottle. I, I knew we were in trouble, but uh, I got to say, I think that the Schaefer wine that we had, which I can't remember the one we had, it kind of lived up to its, oh, man, it was its reputation. It was, it was smooth. We backed it up with a little Chapelet too. And oh, that's right. So, uh, yeah, it was just amazing. But uh, we're eternally grateful for the MDT model. And, I mean, I, I think everybody probably knows where it stands in the Gestalt model, right? The things we're so contemplating is, you know, they, they may just do an MDT exam and send them home with just an MDT corrective, whereas we're going to try to blend in the MDT with manipulation, with DNS, with these other models of rehab. And so... Uh, it's not that one's right or wrong. We, we feel like we're maybe getting patients better that they may not or, you know, other things like that. But uh, man, oh man, is, is MVT the most powerful thing in the world? So. Well, I think that the safety, too, is built into a progression of forces, mm -hmm. you know, whereas, you know, and I mean, of course, I'm a homer for MPI and you are, too. Whereas we've already kind of like through our joint play, you know, that safety, we feel like we can use more force probably sooner than a, a true MDT, you know, practitioner could. And, uh, you know, so I think that that might be a, a little bit of a difference, but mm -hmm. I mean, again, that's where I think your MPI background is so critical also. And, and it really does. It marries really well with the, the principles of MDT and, uh, yeah, I think that that all kind of got exposed in the in the podcast. Awesome! All right, guys, we'll enjoy this and uh, stay tuned for the second episode. So, uh, have a good day. 
All right, everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Salt Education Show. I'm Taylor Premier here with Brett Winchester, and we are really excited to be uh, with Mark Miller. So Mark Miller is uh, the Chief Clinical Officer for uh, IMC. He's also an international instructor for the McKinsey Institute, and uh, he won't quite admit it, but he he and, uh, he and literally wrote the book on the extremities when it comes to the McKinsey Institute. He's an icon. <laughs> so, listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're, we're excited to, uh, to be sitting down, to be learning from Mark, and and uh, we're enjoying uh, a couple of really good bottles of wine. Uh, can't wait to. So, Brett, you want to tell them the first bottle we're having? Oh, I get to do it. So, it's a Schaefer Hillside Select, a 2015. So, I've never had Schaefer before. Have you? The first. So, uh, what Virgin. a great, yeah, what a great bottle of wine. Um, and then we're going to follow it up with a little Chapelet at the at the end. So, um, I, I I promise as this podcast gets going, the better it'll get. So, uh, well, anyway, Mark, let's kind of start off with uh, tell us your. Your journey with McKinsey. Where did where did it all start? Uh, you know, how did you first hear about it, and how did you get into it, and what what grew your love for it? Sure. Well, okay. I, I think the first thing to say is is li- li- listen. I don't like doing this kind of stuff, but I'll do anything for wine. It's for a free teacher. That's exactly right. And, it, and 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 again, these bottles are great, guys, and I appreciate it. So, um, I don't even know where to start. It, it, you know, I uh, I can tell you this. I was doing a, a, a preceptorship, which was what we call them now. At that time, it was just a placement, clinical placement. And um, when I arrived there, the two women who were going to be my CIs, they had, the week and before, they had taken McKenzie Part A. And at that time, I think there was a McKenzie Part A and B, and that was it. And I walked into the, the, the office, and they introduced themselves, and I said, hey, how you doing? And they said, look, here's this little book. And at that point, there was a little blue book that Robin had written, and really it was just a manuscript of his 45,000 patients' worth of experience. I'll tell you a story about that later. But um, they said, you got to read this, because this is what we're going to try to do. And I said, well, that works for me. And I took the book home, and being the kind of guy I am, I read it about 13 times over a period of a couple of days. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, I, uh, I was there to learn from them, right? But they were learning something new. So think about how this all worked out. They read the book once, and I read the book 13, 14 times in the first week because I was a student. <laughs> and, and so by about the second week, we're in the clinic, and uh, they come, hey, Mark, um, what do I do? Because there's this guy, and I was doing the press-ups, and uh, his leg got a little numb, and I was just wondering, like, what did it say in the book? And I go, well, that's on page 46, and what you got to do is you got to pull the hips off center. <laughs> so it was kind of like that, and it was really entertaining. Well, the problem is, because I was a little thick at the time, I uh, left there, and I thought, well, this McKenzie stuff is so easy. Um, obviously, it's not the answer. And so I went back to school and I did my thing. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention, really, to the MDT experience that I'd had. I, I just kind of left it behind, went back to school, you know, finished my exams and, and, and moved forward from there. Well, then I get into private practice. Well, it wasn't private practice initially. I went and worked for the hospital up in northern Ontario, Canada. And what happened was I'm there and I'm practicing and the only real thing of all the things I learned throughout my education that was giving me any results that made any sense to me was this MDT thing which we didn't call it then we called it McKenzie and so I started thinking to myself what the heck is going on and so I kept working at it and working at it and I started getting more and more frustrated because I was only so good and then I didn't have answers for the rest of these patients and so 
at that time, I was living in Northern Ontario, so I was working under a Ministry of Northern Affairs environment. So what that meant was this. You sold your soul to the Ministry of Northern Affairs. Just like in America, you joined the Army to get your education paid for. Well, I signed on for two years to live above a certain parallel. And I didn't realize when I got up there, except for the money they gave me to do it, that there were certain advantages. Now, <laughs> to most of your listeners, they're going to go, oh my God, that guy was born in 1881. And I, so, but I got to tell you, at that time, you actually had to go to the library. You had to find the journal. You had to actually pull it off the shelf. And then you had to read it. And if you could convince the librarian to let you use the photocopier, you could actually photocopy it. That's how we got the articles. Well, living in Northern Ontario, what I could do is I could call down to the University of Western Ontario, which is our, our country's best medical library. And because I was an outreach clinician, they would do it for me. So what I did was I, I took Mackenzie's little textbook and I sent them the list of 196 articles that he referenced in his book, and I got them to photocopy every one of them. Microfiche. No, no, that's exactly right. Wow. And, and, and I had them send them up. And I did the same for Syriax's textbooks, and I did the same for what everybody else was doing out there because I was flailing in the wind. And if they didn't get better with extension or with retraction extension, I didn't know what to do. So, so anyway, I get all these articles that I'm reading and I'm learning and I'm developing, and I get to a point where I go, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore because I'm not finding the answers in musculoskeletal medicine. And I'm watching all these people coming in and they're, and they're getting x-rays and they're seeing orthopedic surgeons and no one was getting an answer. So I thought, you know what, this musculoskeletal thing is kind of screwed up. But the only place I was getting results, and by the way, when I analyzed all these articles, the only guy that was telling the truth that I could tell in their textbooks was Robin McKenzie. Let me explain that. So if he quoted an article and you read the article and then you went back to the quote, son of a gun, the article supported what he was saying. But in a lot of these other textbooks, they would quote these articles around these statements and I would read the articles and they, the articles, if you dissected them, that's not really what they were saying. And, and I thought, oh, at least this guy's honest. So guess what? I'm out. I can't do this. Problem was, I had two degrees and I didn't have any money. <laughs> right? So I'm thinking, oh, you're going to go back to school? How are you going to explain this one? <laughs> right? There's only so many hours at McDonald's that you can, you know, punch in. And so, so what I did was I wrote Mackenzie a letter. And I said, hey, what are the chances of me coming to spend some time with you? Because I'm thinking of getting out and I, and I think you might have something, but I don't know. And of course, you know, I got a couple of letters back. They go away, kids, you bug me. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing, right? And, but in one of the letters he sent me uh, was, but, but keep trying, keep doing some good work. So then I hit the jackpot. I get this phone call from the University of Western Ontario's library. And they go, we don't know who you are and we don't know what you are, but we've never had to work as hard. <laughs> we are photocopying constantly. And it's all about the spine. What, who, what are you doing? And so <laughs> I said, well, I'm trying to learn. And they said, well, guess what? There's this outreach program that goes through across northern Ontario. And, and it's a pod, well, well, they don't call them podcasts. They were, I think they were telecasts or something. You know, you get on, this, on the phone and people would call in. And, and that was the technology at the time. They said, could you do something on the spine around literature? And I said, uh, yeah, I'm glad to. So about a week before it was going on, they said, look, 
not only physical therapists, but uh, chiropractors and physicians and surgeons, they all want to get on this. We put it out there and it's about low back pain and it's a big thing and, and it's gone countrywide. Would you still do it? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, it's no big deal. I'm just going to tell them what I know. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It's just, you know, I've read these articles. This is what it says. So I do this. I'm thinking to myself after I get done, I go, oh, I bet you that McKenzie guy would go for this. So I wrote him another letter and I said, hey, I want to come to New Zealand and I've done this and this and this and son of a gun, I get a letter and he says, come on to New Zealand, I'm going to pay for it and, I, and, and, and I'll train you. So that's what happened. Wow. The reason I went was because if he, I was going to watch him examine, I was going to try to learn from him and if he didn't have the answers, I was done. I was done with physical therapy, I was done with orthopedics, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do something else because it's, it's too screwed up. And I watched him in the clinic for two weeks and I thought, oh, He's got the answer. Science doesn't say he does. Nobody else says he does in Canada. But I'm telling you right now, I know it. I just knew in my gut. I just knew it. So that's how I started. That's what happened. And what did you see in those two weeks, Mark? Like, what was it that just, like, opened your eyes to, you know, the, the wonder of Robin McKenzie? What I realized is he did not... He was, he was, it's not that he didn't care. He was, a love, he was a lovely, lovely guy. But his intent was not to fix anyone. His intent was try to understand. And the way he tried to understand was not, here's the anatomy, so let me stress the anatomy and then figure out what, what that anatomy is. It was, I, whatever's in front of me has behavior. And if it is truly an orthopedic condition that I can actually have an, an opportunity to try to resolve, I gotta understand that behavior. Regardless of what the anatomy is, regardless of what the mechanism of injury was, regardless of how old they are, regardless of what their story is, there's gotta be, it's a cause and effect relationship. And if I can find that, I can continually use that cause and effect to devise a methodology by where I can help these people. And as I sat and watched it over and over and over again, he was more interested in understanding it than he was in fixing it. Hmm. And so it's kind of like what he kept doing was, he kept analyzing and analyzing and analyzing and analyzing and then the problem went away. It wasn't, let me see what this is, now I'll devise a, a treatment plan. The treatment plan never sort of surfaced, it was just, he continued to analyze, and the more he analyzed, the more he saw the cause and effect relationships, and as they changed, he kept changing what he was doing. It took me a while to figure it out, but as I was watching it happen, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I get this now, mm -hmm. kind, kinda, mm -hmm. kinda. It took me a couple of years. To, I went back to Canada, and he had actually asked me, you know, Mark, and he, he liked me, and I liked him, and we, you know, it was kind of cool, but but he, he said, would you, would you teach this? I said, yeah, all day long, except for I don't know what I'm teaching and I don't know how to do it, but yeah, I'll give it a run, right? And, but but the, the point I'm trying to get to was the thing I did realize, if you just follow the cause and effect and whatever happens, you, it creates a question and then you develop a mechanical methodology by where to try to create an answer. That's how I started getting successful in the clinic. And I learned that when I watched him and I knew it. I knew he was right. Now, I didn't know if the rest of society, the medical societies would accept it, but I knew he was right, and I decided to stay in musculoskeletal medicine. That's, that's how it happened. They always say, Mark, principles kind of stand the test of time. So it sounds to me like even, I don't know, you never, you didn't date it, but I don't know how long ago that was, but I mean, how much has MDT evolved since then? Are the principles basically stayed the same? What, what would you say about I th that? I think our evolution is, and Robin always used to say this, he goes, look guys, I've kind of scratched out the surface and I want you to take it from here. And, you know, we always chided him like, okay, you're being too humble and, and, and that's not true. But, but there's, there's an essence to what he said. 
No, he didn't just scratch the surface. I mean, he he gave us volumes, right? I mean, <laughs> remember I told you about the little thin book. Yeah. So I, I remember asking him. I said, I said, Robin, you got to tell me. Um, how, how many patients did you see uh, before you wrote that book? And he goes, oh, uh, well, 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 Miller, it, it was about 45,000. <laughs> and I kind of chuckle like, I go, 45,000? How did you pick 45,000? Like, how old are you? <laughs> and he goes, I said, how did you pick 45,000? He goes, oh, well, uh, I, I thought that'd be about enough. <laughs> That was the key number. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of there's some truth to this, right? So, so that's all it was. It was his experiences, and what he what he did was, he he just kept paying attention to every variable, and then he and then he would do like what we would now call a regression analysis. At that time, he just had all he just kept every data point on everything, mm-hmm. and then he started to realize certain data points had value, and other data points didn't. Right. So I, I forget your question, by the way, and I'll, I'll do this. That's all right. We'll regroup. But I mean, I think our listeners have heard, you know, multiple speakers talk before, like Bobby Fisher is the best chess player. Mm-hmm. He called it like building memory traces. Another way to say it would be like pattern recognition. Right you now. Yeah. So it seems like all the greats in the world, it doesn't matter exactly what your discipline is. They're really good at like paying attention. And it sounds right. like Rob McKenzie was, that was one of his gold medals is kind of knowing. No, absolutely. He paid attention to everything. But then his, his, his other talent was recognizing those data points that counted mm. and then stringing them together right what, what I learned from 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 watching him and I and again a lot of this stuff I would love to tell you I knew it immediately I saw it and he taught it well you had to kind of watch him and then you had to kind of get it by osmosis right and and if you asked him a question he'd teach you but you had to know which question to ask and at that time I was I was like I didn't know what question to ask I just kind of just watched it all happen and I kind of I saw it and I kind of figured out well, I'll go back and try it. And it, I, I really do believe it took a couple of years. I mean, I was on stage teaching, teaching courses. And I look back now, and I didn't know what the hell at all that I was doing. <laughs> and, and, but, it was, but it was still, it still made more sense than what it, the other things that were out there. So it's kind of like one of those things you were still, when you were in front of 60 people, you were still, because you could examine a patient and use cause and effect analysis to make decisions, you were still ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like that. And, and so he, he, he had so many great talents, but one of them was to pay attention. And the other was to change his mind. He could, he could have a, an idea in his head and he could have an anatomical basis for that idea and then something would happen in the clinic. He'd go, no, that's wrong. I'm wrong. And he would let the patient teach him but his talent was being able to extract the information. Like he said, Miller, every patient knows they don't know they know. And, and the ones that don't know have it within them. They just don't know how to figure it out. Hmm. And he goes, and my job is to just get it out of them. So that's where I, the, the, one of the great things I learned from him was the history. Like, oh, let's take the better more section. I'll never forget this. We were sitting in his office and we were just talking, right? Because I, I really just enjoyed picking his brain. And, and he loved giving you information, but you had to draw it out of him, right? And he said, what do you think about that better worse section on the form? And, and I said, you know what? I, I'm not sure it helps. Like, sometimes it distracts me. And, and, and he goes, I wouldn't mind seeing it just be a big blank. What makes you worse? What makes you better? And then take it from there. 
mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I always thought that well, it was really cool. And, and by the way, it took me about ten years to finally start doing that. <laughs> you know, We've oh, talked about how Nash said his little house city. Well, some of us a little thicker than others. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a little longer. But, you know, I eventually figured it out. Yeah. And, and 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 of course, you know, we have to have standards within the institute. And, and frankly, there are a lot of like like there are tons and tons and tons of clinicians that can't think for themselves. Mm. Right? Right. And, and, and it's just the way it is. And so he's like, okay, how do I help these people the most? He gave them the best questions. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, the people that do this best, they ask the patient, tell me what makes you worse and then show me. Mm. You know, and that's, and that's the thing. I always make the joke. I say, I say, I always try to, as soon as possible, I try to take my patients to Missouri. And then people kind of look at me and they go, what's he talking about? And Missouri is the show me state. Yeah. Right? And it's like, show me. Because as soon as you show me what makes you worse and I watch you and I watch how you do it, I probably will know what's wrong. Mm. Because there are those conditions that rapidly reverse and rapidly change. We call them arrangements. Mm. And then there are all those others that don't. Mm. And there's a whole series of them, and I'm not going to get into it. Let's not bore your audience. But bottom line is, is you watch somebody. When you ask them, do you know what makes you worse? And they say, uh, well, you know, uh, it means they don't. Mm. Which means most likely it hasn't healed this way. Mm. How often, I've learned with my mentors, like as time goes on, and a lot of times your mentors, they're deceased at this point, that you think about something they said and then like in hindsight you're like oh my gosh like, but at the time when you heard it it didn't mean much to you but then you're like okay this makes a lot of sense yeah you're so oh are you kidding me that happens to me all the time still you, you like you're so dead on and it's funny so many of the things he said maybe he said them on purpose maybe he didn't but I can tell you this I didn't get it at the time. <laughs> and so here we are having a glass of wine and I can tell you you are going to bring something up that's going to remind me of something that maybe Robin said or, or or one of the other early early on mentors in this area and I go oh shoot I haven't thought of that for, and I just learned something today uh-huh. <laughs> Mark you have to tell our listeners the story you told today about the need arrangement and uh, how you thought you were really on to something <laughs> and then I think really how Robin handled the whole thing is just I mean, you talk about an icon. The way he even handled that and what right. he told you, if you could uh, maybe tell us that, that story. You know, it's, I, I'm going to give you two, all right? I'm going to give you a two for the price of one here. Because, Let's go. Because this, this kind of, this, I think this is important. Because I think, I think what you're asking me is, can you kind of help the people that are listening maybe understand Robin a little bit better or get to know him a little bit better? So, so the first one is this, and this is funny. So I get back to Canada, right? I'm up in Northern Ontario, and Robin wants me to go out and start teaching some courses, and I'm thinking, man, I better, I better get good at this because I'm going to be seeing 10, 12 patients on stage in front of my peers, and, and not all the peers are very happy to be there, and not all the peers are going to agree with a lot of things we say. And by the way, at the time, we didn't have a whole lot of science behind things. We, you know, we had Robin's book, and, hey, how you doing? I'm Mark Miller. I'm you know. <laughs> <laughs> from I'm from Southern Ontario. And so uh, the patient, I got to see patients, a lot of them, before they're going to start paying attention to what I got to say. And so anyway, I get back to New Zealand. And I'm really working hard. I'm in Canada. I'm working hard in the spine. And I get this, and I got a surgeon who's a buddy of mine, right? We play golf together. We go for a couple beers once in a while. And so he's like, you know, I'll send you all the spines, but you got to take care of these post ops for me. And so he's sending me these these knees and things, and I, and I get this one guy and resolve his knee pretty quickly great surgery easy rehab no problem right next guy same everything 
and he's a mess. I can't straighten the goddamn knee out. I can't get anywhere with it. And I'm doing all the stuff that at the time we did. We, we'd sustain it. We'd put hot packs on it. We'd sustain it more. We'd mobilize it. We'd try to manipulate it. We'd do all these things, right? And this guy, nothing's happening. And I'm getting frustrated as heck. He's taking up a lot of my time. I'm wasting his time. And I'm thinking, oh. So then I go, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give the guy the dysfunction model. I need you to do this 10 repetitions. I want you to do it every two hours. Three months. Yeah. And I don't want you to bother me ever again. Right? <laughs> See you in three months. Well, exactly. You're going to be a lot better. <laughs> it's going to be great. Thank you very much. And don't forget your copay. Yeah. <laughs> this guy goes away. Three days later, he shows up in my office. I didn't book him. Knocks on the door, comes in. I go, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, good. I want to show you something. Knee's got full range of motion. He's got full squat. His strength is back. And I'm looking at him going, oh, that's incredible. You have a knee derangement. And he's like, well, I got a what? And I go, ah, forget about it. Don't worry about it. You just, you know, keep doing that and um, see me in about a month. Out the door goes. See it a million times. I am so excited. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, there are derangements in the peripheral joints. This is incredible. So I call Robin up, right? <laughs> Get him on the phone. Hello, Miller. I said, hey, Mac, how you doing? I said, listen, I got something for you. This is incredible. He goes, ah, what's going on, Miller? I said, uh, do you know there's derangements in the peripheral joints? <laughs> he goes, right. <laughs> I go, don't give me that race stuff, Robin. I said, you do that race stuff, and it drives me crazy. I said, look, I just discovered something. Hold on a minute, right? What do you mean? He goes, Miller, I wrote all about it in the book. Have you ever read the book? <laughs> Oh man, this is a bad thing. Why did I do this to myself, right? And so now it's all kind of coming back to me. I'm going, oh no. And he goes, Miller, go get the book. I'm thinking, oh, this is bad. So I open it up. Page five. He goes, page five, Miller. He goes, could you read the paragraph? And basically, what it says is, you know, I have developed a system of examination and treatment. I don't think I'm quoting it exactly, but it's like this of examine and treatment that not only pertains to the lumbar spine, but you can apply it to the cervical and the thoracic spine, as well as to all the peripheral joints. So to, according to Rob McKenzie, that was his per, first peripheral joint book. Right? And, and, and then he goes, all right, Mella, don't call me with this again. And, and of course, he hangs up, I hang up, I'm like, oh, it was one of those, and I don't know if your readers, are, if your listeners are going to be okay, it was one of those, oh, shit moments, right? And I'm thinking, oh, I got to be very judicious when I call him. Right? I gotta be more. I gotta think this stuff through better. I gotta play chess. Yeah, reaction point there. No, you look in the mirror and no, it was a great way. lesson. It was a great lesson. So let me tell you the second lesson. So I'm flying around Canada and I'm teaching courses, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, here I am in Timmins, Ontario. Um, there's a lot of clinicians here that really would like a course. Maybe I'll do one here. And so I decide to do one there. And I, there's a lot, there's a, there's 14 people that have decided to come to this course. And I'm thinking, but the, uh, the McKenzie Institute Canada says, let's do it. So I, I didn't know at the time, I was pretty young, and I didn't know that the further you fly, the smarter they think you are. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but in your own hometown, own backyard, yeah. you're, you're yeah. pretty much an idiot, yeah. right? Exactly. And so I teach this course. I think I do a very nice job. And 13 of the 14 critiques 
I'm pretty much an idiot, <laughs> right? And I I was berating, and I I I I asked them to 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 research literature, and how dare I challenge their 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 professional integrity and everything? So I'm reading, and I'm going, oh my god, I'm the wrong guy for this. <laughs> This is crazy. I'm killing the Institute. I'm killing Robin McKenzie's work in Canada. And I'm thinking, oh, I gotta, I gotta make a call. I'm done. I'm finished. This is over. Here you go. Oh, yeah, it's over, baby. Yep. So, so I call Robin up. And, hey, Mella, how you doing? I'm, you know, I'm pretty good, Robin. How you doing? And I go, Robin, listen, this is a tough call, phone call for me, but I, uh, I want to let you know that I'm resigning. And he goes, what are you talking about, Miller? And I, I, I said, well, here's what happened, Mac. I, I, I really think you picked the wrong guy. I, uh, and thank you, by the way, but I, I'm the wrong guy for this. I said, uh, I just taught a course here in, in, in Timmins, Ontario. And Don't said, read the review. No, 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 I said, you got to read these. I said, there's 13 of them. I, they panned me. I said, they, they panned us. I said, we're, we're done here. And I, 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 I blew it, man. Um, so listen, thank you. And you're, 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 thank you for all I've learned. And uh, I said, but I, I really think it's, it's time for me to just kind of get out of, and, and he goes, Miller, he goes, what if we do this? Why don't we take those 13, we'll offer to uh, give them their money back, and we'll tell them not to come back to another course. <laughs> he says, would that take care of things, and then maybe you'll teach another course for me. Uh, and I said, oh, really? And he goes, oh yeah, I think we ought to do that. I think that's a good idea. Uh, I said, thanks a lot, man. And he goes, don't worry about it, Miller. <laughs> Good talking to you. <laughs> and that was it. He hangs up. And I sit back and I go, you know what? I, I finally realized what kind of a guy this guy is. You know, and, and then that was it. And then it's it's been it's been forward and, and fast and wonderful ever since. You know, the, the guy gave me an international stage is what he did. Yeah. And um, yeah, let, let's face it, I, I've had to live up to it, but he gave it to me. Mm. And um Anyway, that, I, I, if you want to know who he is, that's who he is. Yeah, what, a, what an awesome story. Holy shucks. There's uh, a lot of misconceptions about what MDT is. So we're kind of getting away from a pathway anatomical diagnosis. That's but right. You, you do have papers, uh, whether it's FASI, Alexander, and Spine, and clinical biomechanics, that do show the disc model actually does occur maybe in the younger spine. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk to our listeners about why McKinsey stays away from like pathway anatomical diagnosis? Right. But then you also, as you stated today, I mean, you have the reality of there's a certain personality type that does want to be educated on some kind of disc model. Sure. So, so listen, I, I, and I'll, I'll speak for the McKenzie Institute first. Uh, I'll then speak for Robin as, as best I can, and it's not fair because I'll, I'll do the best I can to represent him, uh, and, and then I'll speak for myself. So the McKenzie Institute, as you well know, is, is moving away from all, all models, including the DISC model. But I can tell you, it's not happening without a lot of sort of debate and argument and discussion within the organization itself. And the way I understand it at this point is, and, and again, it's interpretation of what are we doing here as an as a institution. And it's, you can use the DISC model as an explanation to those individuals that you deem as a clinician are going to be best served by it. But what you do not want to do is you do not want to use it universally and you do not want to treat with the DISC model in mind, okay? And I think that's a fair statement. Now. Robin, I asked him about it. I had the opportunity to sit with him and ask him about it. And he said, look, Miller, uh, 
the disc model is just a it's it, it, it's a tissue of best fit. He goes, here's what happened. Read page six. <laughs> you know, yeah, and don't call me with that again. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So 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 his point on this was simple. He goes, I've got this guy, Mr. Smith. I put him into sustained extension by accident, which is exactly what Syriac said not to do. It's exactly what I was teaching at Otago University not to do. And he says, and son of a gun, this guy gets better. So what do I do? I go home, I open up the anatomy books, and I'm trying to figure out what the heck happened. And he says, it was the tissue of best fit. And I said to him, I said, okay, hold on a minute. Let's, find, let's say the anatomists and the biomechanists and the clinicians of current excitement determine that it's the zygopophyseal joint. That's the source of all the derangements. And the disc has nothing to do with it. What are you going to do now? And he says, Mella, all we're going to do is we're going to change that one hour at the beginning of part A. And instead of talking about a disc model, we're going to talk about a zygopophyseal joint model. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. And I, and I said to him, I said, come on, man. Don't kid me. Yeah, right. I know that disc is close to your heart. Come on. Yeah. The truth. And he goes, I've just told it to you. Would you like another drink? <laughs> <laughs> and so where I'm taking you, and this is a true story. We were sitting, I'll never forget it. We were sitting in his living room. And as a, as a diploma guy, he, he did this with every diploma team that came through. One time. He got invited to his house, and 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 and, and it was a wonderful time. And he was, anyways, his wife was wonderful. Joy's great, and and we had a great time. But I challenged him on that because I was curious what his thoughts were, and he was very clear. It is a model. It was a tissue of best fit. It is a nice explanation, and I have no clue if it's correct. Do you feel in saying that that you can get as much buy-in from a patient patient? for exercise compliance with a certain movement helping an arrangement mm -hmm. versus when you draw that beautiful disc model. Like, do you feel like the compliance is the same if we're being honest with each other? Right. Or? And, the, and the answer is absolutely yes and absolutely no. And it really depends on who that patient is. It depends on their thought processes. And now, because of the way we, we, we think of things, it's their healthcare beliefs, right? But if you go back, and let's forget all the new stuff about motivational interviewing and the biopsychosocial model and Let's just go back to just practical, which is your question was a practical question. The answer is the disc model is the best thing to show them or it's the worst thing to show them. It depends on who they are, what they think, what their, what their training is, what they've been told by other clinicians. Do they trust the clinician that they just spent time with or do they think that clinician is crazy? And so it really comes down to you have to be sitting in front of the patient and you got to go, disc model or no? <laughs> which way am I going to go? <laughs> you know the pain people now like, like the pendulum keeps swinging you guys know this you've been around forever and you're you're you're, you're recognizing you as well around the around the country and perhaps around the world and 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 you know the pendulum keeps swinging right so and the pendulum now has kind of swung more towards the pain guys going Whatever you do, don't use a, a, a visual analog scale. Don't use a, numerical, a numerical pain scale. Don't talk about anatomy. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? They are absolutely correct, except for when they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way it is. So you're sitting in front of a patient. You've seen the cause and effect action happen. You've seen the leg start to improve. You've seen the tension sign start to improve. The extensor hallucius longus is actually starting to behave like it might. And you gotta choose. Do I use a disc model or not? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't.
Yeah. So, well, I think that's a pendulum that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Is that it seems like the pain science? If you follow that, you follow the pure literature, the evidence base, you're not doing anything with the patient. So you're uh, slapping them on the butt and saying, and you, you know, you're going to be just fine. Yeah, you put your arm around them and you say it's going to be great, <laughs> unless of course they operate on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, then it was their fault, not mine, mm-hmm. right? So now, am I allowed to try this new bottle? Let's oh, go. God. We're, we're kicking it out of the Chapelet. Come on. Um, well, I think that's a great kind of a, a, a stopping point or a next mixing point of um, breakfast. Can I add one more yeah, question yeah. before we go to IMC? So today I thought you gave a great analogy. You're talking about Susan Mercer and how, like, she was an anatomist, and she was right. talking about, like, kind of a fat pad model in the, sure. in the peripheral, peripheral joints. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I never even thought about that. To me, it was always I was thinking cartilage fragments, or I was thinking, you know, meniscal. Right. You know, so maybe in the peripheral joints we don't exactly have a disc model, but then we perhaps have another model that potentially we can educate the patient on. Sure. Since you're kind of the leading expert in the world in MDT for peripheral joint treatment, can you kind of comment on? Although we don't have an official nucleus pulposus in our extremity sure. joints, could you? Sure. Elaborate on that for us, sure. please. Uh, let me do this first. I think your description of me was very generous. <laughs> However, let's, let, hey, you know what? Call my wife and let's go with this. <laughs> so, Talking about being experts in your own backyard, we always say, like, treating your wife, you know nothing. Nothing. No, like, concentric circles away from that, you become. I tell you what, yeah, if you try to treat your wife, you've proven to me that you do know nothing. <laughs> That's a road to nowhere. I mean, every time. What were you thinking? Yeah. Well, congratulations. You are definitely an expert, you know, in your own mind. Because you, you might have wanted to avoid that. Yeah. I've done this a thousand times. No one's ever said anything. And you're like whining about, you know, it's like, come on. All right, back on track. Let's, no, sorry. Oh, I'm going to come yes, back. We, we, we digress. They don't bless with this anyway. Right. So it's yeah. really not that <laughs> By the way, my wife will actually appreciate that. Yeah. Because she has had a long stand. It's funny. She goes, you know, you can fix everybody else, but you can't fix me, can you? You know, so so you've all been there. We all know how it works. You go buy a psychosocial honor or not? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm going now lately with the motivational uh, interviewing. Right. You know what? She knows what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> not, she figured it out. It is not working. Smiley faces. So how do you feel mm-hmm. today? Yeah. <laughs> I'm truly proud. Happy. Let me try to dig into your healthcare beliefs. <laughs> So, okay, I'm sorry, guys. Oh, I, know, yeah. I know where we digress. You know, our peripheral joints, that fiscal, what is it? All right, so here's the deal. Patients need something to grasp onto. They need a model. They need something. And so the model that I gave you today, um, and that did not just come from me. There was there was a, a bunch of us. Rally was one of them. Colin, Colin Davies up in Canada. Um, but we took Susan Mercer out for a couple of drinks, and here's why. She had just published a paper. And by the way, if you ever get a chance, and I don't even know if she's still on the circuit at all. I've, uh, and, and I've heard a couple of social stories. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. She's she's her intellect is incredible, and she's always excited because she's an anatomist right so like I'll give you her quote when an anatomist has an opportunity to see there's a possibility that their findings have clinical application that makes us giddy that is our mind blower so she when we approached her at that particular conference that you're you're talking about um, she was so excited to just sit down with us now the the, the Savignol Blanc didn't hurt right (laughs) but she was so excited and and I didn't the second part of the story I didn't tell was three weeks later I get an email from Colin Davies because Colin Davies said you know he's the classic give me your contact information I'll stay in touch with you and 
he, he, he emails me, he says, Susan Mercer was wondering if maybe she, she could come down to Austin, Texas and watch you examine peripheral joints. It's like, are you kidding me? Uh, that would be a yes. Right? <laughs> Let me think about it. Oh, okay, yeah, she can, yeah, yeah. Tell her to bring some wine in. Right? So, so, so anyway. Try to play cool. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. well. There's no big deal for. Yeah. for Let me check my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly it. So, so anyway, what happened was this. Um, we were seeing these obviously derangements in, in the peripheral joints, and we didn't really have explanations, like you said. There, there, there were there weren't there was no disc model. So so what was happening? And I and, and I was along the same pathway as you. Obviously something is hurting. It's something in in the way. It's but the problem was this. Not only did it have to be in the way, but it also had to cause pain, right? And the little cartilage pieces and things made sense about being in the way, but then the question was, okay, how did that become a pain generator? Well, I was making stuff up. I was just telling patients, like, you'll love this, and I wish you guys could see the diagram. I'll never forget the first time I had a shoulder derangement, and the woman goes, so you know that piece you were talking about? Where did it go? <laughs> I was going, oh, oh this is not cool. Yeah. All right, so, so now, now go back. Go back to shoulder anatomy. If if you remember, and or I made it up. I can't remember now. It was either, this is either the truth or it's I'm, I'm just lying. But but if I remember in my anatomy, there was a little appendix on the shoulder capsule, kind of came down, right? And 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 so I drew it for her, and, and I said it goes down in there. And That's she, called pathoanatomical diagnosis. No, no, thank you, thank you very much. And, and she, this is a true story, by the way. You're not going to believe this, but it's a true story. And she goes, how does it stay there? Right? And I said, uh, gravity, so never stand on your head. It's a true story. And she kind of chuckled. And she goes, okay, I won't. <laughs> that was, at that time, that was my prophylaxis program for shoulder derangements. Stay off your head. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Unreal. That was a true story. So anyway, so Susan, fast forward. I know we're digressing here, but so Susan Mercer's paper, the first one that I had read, um, uh, no, it was the second one. The first one she had a disc thing, but the second paper that I had read of hers was the, about elbows, and all it was was what she called elbow inclusions, and what she described were these fat pads, and these fat pads were all throughout the elbow, and she, in, in her discussion, it was just an anatomical description of them, some of them had were just fat pads with and they have they all had innervation and and if you think about it well how could that happen well for fat to survive it has to have blood blood never goes anywhere without nerve they're combined right so she would she described that and then and then she at the very end she just said it's possible that maybe these fat pad inclusions that i'm describing could be reasons why people have elbow pain that was it Right, so I remember reading this and a few of others, and who I, I don't know how the whole thing evolved, but but one of us or some of us said, I wonder if those are elbow derangements. <laughs> so she was speaking at a conference. We're all there. We said, Hey, could we talk to you a little bit? And we said, We're really excited because we're seeing these elbows that change rapidly, and we're thinking maybe that your article's got something to do with it. And we were wondering if can we talk to you. And she was like, are you kidding me? I'm an anatomist. If there's clinical application, let's go. So we go. Well, this lunch went on for like hours and hours and hours. She started pulling up 
all these um, these these uh, dissection slides of shoulders and knees, and she's showing us all these fat pads that are all over the place, and we're picking her brain like crazy, right? We're like, well, how long do they take to develop, and where do you find them the most? And here's a couple of things that we learned from her. She said, people who had trauma in their history had more than those that didn't. People that had um, more degeneration had more of them, and I'm convinced based on the analysis of the cells that they don't take long to develop. So I'm like, whoa, those could be the answer to derangement. Now, now I gotta be clear here. The McKenzie Institute is like, we're not using that as a model. Robin never wanted to have a model for the peripheral joints because he was afraid that people would all of a sudden start treating the model like they did initially with the disc model for the spine. And it was like, it drove him crazy, right? He's like, the disc model is a description of what I'm seeing in the clinic and I don't know if it's right. Mm -hmm. See what I'm going? So he, oh, wouldn't, totally. he wouldn't go for a model for the peripheral joints. But I started using it and a couple of the other guys started using it and the girls started using it. And I think a lot of the faculty do, but you know what? I can't speak for them because I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, I use the fat pad model all the time. Yeah. And it, it came from Susan Mercer. So you're going to love this story. Well, or not. Am I, are, we, are we taking up too much time here? Oh, no. God. Oh, no. my God. Oh, okay, good. Let's get loose, bro. We got to bottle of here. So anyway, Susan Mercer calls me up and says, can I come to Austin? So I was like, uh, yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be great. Why don't you, uh, I don't know, um, do you got a place to stay? And... So she, she says, no. And I said, do you want to stay with us? So she's like, yeah, I'd love to stay with you. So I pick up Susan Mercer at the airport, and she's staying at our house. How amazing. And, and I'm going to like, wow, I'm going to, like, Susan Mercer is in, like, in my guest room. She's not sleeping. I got questions. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like, I can't believe it. I, 5 a.m. No, no. <laughs> it's time to go to bed, Mark. <laughs> you know? So so it's like I got Susan at her house for like three days. Yeah. It was awesome. And she's a great lady. Just that's a great lady. But I'm picking her brain, picking her brain, picking her brain. But one of the things she wanted to see was she wanted to see us examine peripheral joints. Well, Scott Herbaut was my partner at the time, right? And he was teaching a course that day. He couldn't believe it. So I was like, he's gone. And I got Susan Mercer on myself, right? And so I called all the physicians I knew in town. I said, send me these peripheral joints. Nine peripheral joints in the morning. Nine we got. And, and I examined everyone in front of her. Seven Purple joint arrangements. Oh, you got lucky, baby. That's, you know, yeah. seven. Yeah, no spines. Seven. Never in a million years is this ever going to happen. And as it's happening, I could just see her wheels spinning. And then she starts asking these patients, "Do you ever get pain right here in your elbow?" And they go, "That's where it is. That's the pain." There's a fat pad there, Mark. There's a fat pad. I find a fat pad there every time. <laughs> she's, she's like losing it because she's an anatomist and she's seeing a clinical application, right? So ever since that experience with her, I've used the fat pad model. I don't, in a derangement, in a peripheral joint, I use it with every patient. Hmm. And they, they see it. It makes sense to them. And I can tell you, it garners compliance. Hmm. And so that's how I do it for what it's worth to your audience 
It's up to them. Yeah. yeah. For our listeners, we were with uh, Tom Michaud this past week in Boston, who's basically the world's expert in photorthotics, human locomotion, etc. But anyways, he said, if you ever get a hold of like a researcher, he goes, they will treat you like a relative because they, you know, they're not used to people. Re- they're like, someone actually read my stuff. Like that. They're like so blown away and shocked that. Uh, so sounds like Susan Mercer. We can put her in that category. Is like yeah. she's enamored with the actual clinical application. Absolutely. Sounds like we got a trip planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are gonna love this. She married a guy that owned a winery in Australia. Oh, let's go. And she, can we go tomorrow? I'm telling you. You in? Yeah, I'll find out for you. I'll, You're I, in. You know what? IMC private jet. Or <laughs> <do> you, <laughs> let's go. Yeah. You know what? If you could get a bicycle across the ocean, the IMC bicycle would get you there. <laughs> If we're successful, and, and I don't, I don't rate success in terms of how much money you make. If we're successful because we create the change we set out to, there, there actually might be a jet. I'm a little embarrassed, and I'll never use it. Mm-hmm. All right, but it might be there for you. Sew it on a pillow. How about that quote? Cool.